Hey, everybody. If you've been looking for love at first sight, it's closer than you think. It can be found at your local shelter. So this June 7th to June 9th, join the Pedigree Adoption Drive and the Pedigree brand will reimburse your dog adoption fees nationwide. Pedigree knows that bringing a dog into your home not only opens their heart, it can open yours too. Visit pedigree.com slash adoption dash drive to learn more and see full terms and conditions. Hey, everybody. Host Nora McInerney is back for season two of The Head Start, Embracing the Journey, a podcast from Ruby Studio and AbbVie. In each episode, Nora has a real conversation with real people living with chronic migraine to see how they took action to understand this disease. So jump into the conversation for season two, a show that creates a little more space for empathy and understanding in such a complicated world. There shouldn't be so much hesitation around asking questions and asking for help. So don't wait. Join the Head Start Embracing the Journey and learn a little bit more about life with chronic migraine. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh, and there's Chuck, and Jerry's here, too, the whole gang. And this makes this an official episode of Stuff You Should Know. Please disregard some previous ones where it was just me and Chuck. <laughs> just disregard them. <laughs> just don't even listen to them. And if you have listened to them, actively forget what you learned. Okay. Uh, have you ever seen before? Well, let's not reveal what's happened. Did you ever see the Georgia Guidestones? I was a bit of a schlub and assumed that I would just be able to some other time. Uh, okay. Did you? No, I never had any interest. I, I wasn't like passionately interested, but I thought that'd be kind of cool. And then I, I looked on a map. I was like, oh, that's where they are. <laughs> I don't really feel like going over there. So I'm just going to put it off and put it off. I always thought it was kind of silly, and I still do, even more so probably, but sure. it's fun to talk about. No, for sure. Like, this is, um, I think if you don't take it as partially silly, you are being a little too serious. But that's also not to say, like, they were intended in, as any sort of joke or with any sort of silliness. I think the earnestness with which they were put up, along with the earnestness which with which some people took them, that's what really kind of makes it silly from like an outside observer's point of view, I think. Yeah, I agree. And uh, what we're talking about are what's known as the Georgia Guidestones, mm -hmm. uh, a.k.a. America's Stonehenge, mm -hmm. uh, our, our ancient, <laughs> going all the way back to the 1980s. Yeah. <laughs> That's why I always thought it was kind of silly. Anytime they say like something sort of hyperbolic like that. Mm -hmm. Like, this is our Stonehenge. Right. Erected in 1980. Right. Circa 42 years before present. <laughs> what is that in uh, Ghostbusters? But, is it six years before Ghostbusters? Oh, are we doing that again? No, maybe just this one time, you know? Okay. <laughs> um, I get why they call them America's Stonehenge, though, mm -hmm. because uh, they look a bit like Stonehenge, these giant granite slabs. Uh, set on end with capstones and such. But I think maybe we should go back now that we've at least told people what the heck these things are. They're inscribed with words. Uh, <laughs> and that's all we'll give you for now. And then let's go back and talk about the history because the story of it is is kind of interesting, I think. Definitely interesting. I mean, there's a lot of mystery that was um, purposefully, I think, kind of generated around the whole thing. And that mystery starts at the very beginning when a guy named R.C. Christian showed up in Elberton, Georgia. I believe it's the county seat of Elbert County, which is in the, I think, extreme east of Georgia, close to the South Carolina border, correct? Uh, it's, it's about 35 miles sort of east and north of Athens, Georgia, mm -hmm. which is, if you don't know where Athens is out there, uh, it's about 100 miles. Athens isn't, but Elberton itself is about 100 miles north and east of Atlanta. So it's headed towards South Carolina, but it's not like on the border. Okay. And for those who aren't familiar with Atlanta, Chuck, how far is Atlanta from uh, from <laughs> Montgomery, <laughs> Alabama? Oh, boy. Let me get out my map. <laughs> So it's in the east of Georgia. It's in, it, as one, I think the publisher of the local paper put it, it's as rural as rural can be. And yeah. um, there's like, at the time that all this happened, 1979, when R.C. Christian showed up, there were not even 6,000 people in the whole town, 19,000 people in the entire county. And it seems like the kind of place where there were probably more cows than people at the time. Yeah. I mean, Athens is a great 
city in a great college town. It's classic. And there's some the classic city. Uh, and there are some great little uh, towns outside of Athens, but you know, they're small towns, and the further you creep outside of Athens, it gets super rural. Have you ever been to Madison, Georgia? Sure. Madison's great. It's gorgeous, man. It is just this hidden little Very pretty gem. houses and, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so back to Elberton, right? And R.C. Christian in particular. It's summer of 1979, and he shows up mm-hmm. in Elberton and probably stuck out like a, a sore thumb. Uh, he wore a very expensive suit. He had a certain air of refinement around him. He seemed to be a little erudite. And he showed up, he presented himself at the offices of Elberton Granite Finishing Company. And we should tell you a little bit about Elbert County and Elberton in particular, they consider themselves the granite capital of the world, and they make a pretty good case. They are apparently sitting on some of the finest granite in the world. In, so fine. In like, right, in like 50 different quarries in the area. So if you wanted to get something done in granite, say like America's Stonehenge, this is where you would logically <laughs> show up. And, and R.C. Christian did show up, and he talked to the president of Elberton Granite Fish- Finishing Company, Joe Fenley, who welcomed him with open arms and got on board immediately. Yeah, I mean, I think Joe Finley, uh, as he probably should have been, was a little um, – well, he was two things. A, like you said, he was impressed with – this sort of finely dressed, intelligent gentleman. But he was also, once he started to hear what this gentleman wanted, a little wary of him and thought, all right, this guy is a little weird Mm -hmm. to me Mm -hmm. here in Elberton and maybe some kind of crackpot because uh, Mr. Christian, who we would find out that's a pseudonym, uh, said, I represent a small group of loyal Americans and I would like uh, on their behalf to be the liaison to commission a, a massive structure built out of these huge granite stones that will be here for millions of years. <laughs> Irony, uh, upcoming. Mm-hmm. Just put a pin in that. And it, it for the purpose of guiding humanity after the apocalypse. And Finley was like, hmm, you sound a little strange to me in his head. But here's what I'll do. Uh, I'll do it for this price. And I don't know. I mean, he named a very expensive price, apparently a few times higher than anything he'd ever worked on. And mm-hmm. I think it was probably in part because it was one of the bigger jobs he'd ever worked on. Yes. And and there may have been a little city boy, country boy thing where he was like, oh, well, I can take this guy for some money. Yeah, apparently it was far and away the biggest project that, the, uh, that Elberton had ever seen. The next biggest project was the town's bicentennial memorial fountain that they put in the middle of the town, which is nothing to sneeze at, but compared to these Georgia Guidestone <laughs> projects, it's, yeah, it's a little Lilliputian. Um, compared to the Georgia Guidestones, it's, it is, you could sneeze all over it. So it was a big project. <laughs> so it was smart that he was like, I need a lot of money for this um, because he ended up needing a lot of money for it. But I get the impression that he made out pretty well, too. Yeah, so uh, Finley of the Rock Quarry said, go see my buddy uh, Wyatt Martin. He's the president of the local bank here, the Granite City Bank, and go talk to him about how we can finance this thing. And Finley called ahead apparently and told Martin, like, this guy coming over is a little kooky, but uh, you ought to see the suit. Just wait (laughs) wait till you smell the guy. So fine. So fine, and he's so intelligent. And Martin apparently was also impressed with the guy as well. And this is the the point in the story where um, we learn that uh, Wyatt Martin, of the president of this bank, is basically the only person who ever learned the truth about who R.C. Christian really was. Because you can't do banking and do this mm-hmm. sort of high-profile transactions uh, with pseudonyms. So he tells him his real name, but said, "Here's the deal, man. I gotta we gotta keep this quiet." I can never be known. Who I'm doing this on behalf of can never be known. And you got to promise me you're never going to tell anyone. And once we get all this stuff done and it's settled, you got to you got to burn all these documents so it can remain a secret. Yeah, and I mean, he chose the right guy to confide in because Wyatt Martin later said in an interview, I think in 2013, that even if you put a gun to his head, he wouldn't tell you the the actual. <laughs> I love that part. Right, the identity. He's like, sure, I'm on board. <laughs> yeah, he really, he really went full board from everything that I've ever read. He didn't even tell his wife. Like he just yeah. took the secret to his grave. He died, I think, in 2021. Um, 
And uh, he never told a single person. And so after that, um, R.C. Christian went back to the Elberton Granite Finishing Company, uh, gave Joe Fenley a a shoebox with like a little wooden model of what they were looking for, right? With some Fisher Uh Price people in there for scale. (laughs) And then there was like 10 pages of instructions that were were accompanied it. And he said to Fenley, "Uh, you'll never see me again. But he did keep in touch with Martin because Martin agreed to be his, and then in turn, that group of sponsors, representative, overseeing the project as 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 well as the money man. And so um, they ended up becoming pen pals over the years. They kept in touch. I love that. Um, and yeah. they, they would go to dinner every once in a while um, in Athens. Uh, and yeah, they were, they got to be pretty close actually. But um, at the time, it was just Martin who was running the show and just Fenley, who was the only other person who had knowingly met this R.C. Christian guy. Yeah, I, you know, I waited tables in Athens during the years of, uh, I guess that was probably 91 to 95. And I always wondered, like, did I serve this guy Yeah. one night? Could I have met this mysterious stranger? I do remember a man that smelled really nice in a suit one time. <laughs> right. Well, you did, in Mexicali Grill. <laughs> did you? Yeah, did you ever serve a stone silver fox in like a nice suit once with another guy who seemed to be a bank president? I did, and he he signed his name anonymous, so on his <laughs> right. check. So it was very, very weird. You're like that seems suspicious, but it's college, so I don't care. <laughs> uh, but here's uh, what happened. This is a very big job for this company, like we mentioned. Um, these stones were not small, like you said. Uh, they ended up having to jackhammer 14 feet uh, into the pyramid quarry. Quarry, which is it? Quarry. Quarry. <laughs> All right. Sure. I always say like K-W-O-R-R-Y, quarry. Yeah, because query sounds like a, a query that you send someone. It sounds like the way R.C. Christian probably said it. <laughs> yeah, query. Yeah. Uh, I don't know why I said it Southern because we really have no idea where he was from. He could have been from Boston for all I know. Oh, we have potentially an idea. Well, that's true. Put a pin in that too. Okay. Uh, so they had to jackhammer down 14 feet. Uh, they had to use a hundred foot tall crane, uh, to put these stones where they needed to go and they needed a location. And, uh, it turns out there was a, a local, I don't know if he was a real farmer, but he had cattle at least and a lot of land. Mm -hmm. And it was a point at the highest elevation in the County. Um, it's not, you know, some big mountain or anything, uh, cause it's pretty flat land over there, but it is the highest elevation and very importantly had really clear views um, all around it, because that'll come into play with sort of the purpose of what these things, uh, what they ended up needing them for. Uh, and so we got five acres for five grand mm-hmm. and said, here, you and your family forevermore can still graze your cattle here. I just want to put these guide stones up. Yeah. Um, and I think the guy, the guy he bought it from, his name was Molinax, and he wasn't just a straight up farmer. He was a contractor. And part of the deal was he, his company got to um, build the base that the whole thing was put on, just to sweeten the Molinaxes. Yeah, there's like a Molinax Ford. I'm like, there's no way they're not related somehow. I don't know. I went to school with some Molinaxes. You never know. Well, look them up, Chuck, on Facebook. Friend them and get to the bottom of this mystery. <laughs> I'm not on Facebook. I'll have to send a letter via carrier pigeon like I used to. <laughs> there's, uh, there's one other thing I just want to point out real quick. Like this, the, we said that this project was the biggest that this this county had ever undertaken. And it served as like a point of civic pride from like that point on. Like no matter how anybody in town felt about the Guidestones themselves, they were probably prideful about the the amazing job that this yeah. this county, the workers in this county came together to produce when they were called upon to do so. And that was definitely part of it because it was a huge, massive undertaking. And also, yeah. not only do, do you have like hats off to the people of Albert County for having done this, think about people who used to quarry stuff, like w- the people who made Stonehenge without like 100-foot cranes and jackhammers to go 14 feet into the ground. Like that, It's just mind-boggling when you think of it like that too. Absolutely. Uh, and as far as Elbert County goes, they got a, a genuine tourist attraction, which they didn't have before. Right. And so this was sort of one of the reasons, apparently, that Christian picked this spot because he kind of figured and was right that they would be prideful and kind of take care of it. Um, apparently, he had some ancestors that were from the region, too. Um, but he also said, you know, our wish is that maybe one day 
the people of Elbert County uh, will come together or maybe just conservationists in general and uh, and do some more big stone rings around this thing. Right. Uh, that never happened. He never got that wish. But like you said, they did take care, very good care of it. Yeah. And like for he, a while. <laughs> he helped he helped uh, establish that by by transferring the rights to that land over to the people of Elbert County. So that that was like they would have even more pride in it because they owned it. It was public land from that point on. Should we take a break? Um, yeah, let's take a break, and we'll, then we'll That's talk about setup. the monument, right? Yeah, and it's about to, it's about to get a little sinister right after this. Stop. You, you, you know. Stop. 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 You should know. Hey, everyone. Host Nora McInerney is back for season two of The Head Start. Embracing the Journey, a podcast from Ruby Studio and AbbVie. In each episode, Nora has real conversations with real people living with chronic migraine to see how they take action to understand the disease. That's right. Recognizing how a migraine attack can change the course of your day, she unpacks each guest's journey and how they talk to their doctors to find the treatment plans that are right for them. Yep. Along with headache specialist Dr. Christopher Ryan and other special guests, Nora speaks to these incredible people who've channeled their feelings of isolation in their chronic migraine journey into advocacy and art. Plus, there are also eight episodes of their first season available for you to binge. So jump into the conversation for season two, a show that creates a little more space for empathy and understanding in such a complicated world. There shouldn't be so much hesitation around asking questions and asking for help. So don't wait. Join the Head Start, embracing the journey as they learn a little bit more about life with chronic migraine. Hey there, are you thirsty? Well, before you take a sip, have you stopped to think about what's in your water? Many conventional bottled waters contain PFAS, harmful substances known as forever chemicals. But you can drink water as clean as nature intended. Richard's rainwater collects 100% pure, refreshing drops of rain. Yes, it really is rain, everybody. This rain is caught clean before it hits the ground or becomes polluted with pesticides and contaminants commonly found in groundwater. Yep, Richard's rainwater is naturally pure with no need for harsh chemicals or additives. That means no added fluoride, no chlorine, no forever chemicals, no microplastics, no nothing. And you can enjoy the clean taste of Richard's still rainwater and the long-lasting cold-pressured bubbles of Richard's sparkling rainwater. Just visit richardsrainwater.com to find a retailer near you. That's richardsrainwater.com. And we even have a special offer, don't we, Josh? Yeah, text STUFF to 2512-928887 and you'll get $2 off a 12-pack case of Richard's rainwater. Sip the sky. You know, true love is always being excited from the first moment you see one another. And every time after that, it's taking long walks together in the summer or gazing longingly into each other's eyes and watching their tail wag when they chase a squirrel in the yard. Well, the pedigree brand asked about believing in love at first sight. And honestly, the answer is yes. Uh, As everyone knows from listening to this show, we have pulled all of our dogs off the street that Emily and I have had over the years, either right off the street or through a local shelter and working with them. And they've all become valued family members. And we think they've appreciated it, too. Yeah, Chuck, there is a pedigree loyalty survey that found that 90% of first-time dog owners report having a dog improved at least one of their relationships, and 80% of first-time dog owners are overwhelmingly more likely to have made at least one new connection as a result of getting a dog. And 95% of all dog owners say that the bond they have with their dogs is closer than they ever expected. Not a big surprise. That's true. We all know that adopting a dog can lead to a lifetime meaningful connection and real love can exist between a pet and a pet parent. You got that straight. Pedigree is committed to helping more dogs find loving homes. Opening your home to a dog can help open your heart. And Love at First Sight is closer than you think because it's available at your local dog shelter. Yeah, very important point. You can find love at first sight with the Pedigree Adoption Drive from June 7th to June 9th. And the Pedigree brand will reimburse your dog adoption fees nationwide. That's right. So just visit pedigree.com slash adoption dash drive to learn more and see full terms and conditions. Hey there, everybody. Here's some bonus stuff you should know. This time it's about traveling to Orlando for business. Orlando has tons of places to host your conferences and meetings. Dr. Michael Edwards, CEO of Ocean Insight, said it best. 
Orlando is as much a business capital as an entertainment one. And when the day is done, you can kick off each evening at one of 46 Michelin-rated restaurants. What's not to love? So check out Orlando, where the possibilities for business travel are unbelievably real. Learn more at orlandoforbusiness.com. Maybe I overstated. It doesn't quite get sinister. Uh, but from the beginning of this project, the local townsfolk, while prideful, there were some that were a little worried about it. And they said, you know, when you're out in the country in Georgia like that, it's 1979, 1980. Mm-hmm. Like, what do you mean you're going to build this big monument? This sounds to me like, you know, the occult or the work of the devil or something. And there was a uh, a sandblaster that worked on the job named Charlie Clamp, who will come up a little bit later. But mm-hmm. he, for one, said that when he was working on carving these characters in the stone, that he heard strange music and disjointed voices. <laughs> uh, and, you know, once these things were up, apparently some some Wiccans and some pagans did come out and do like some dancing and chanting every now and then, mm-hmm. which I'm sure was very harmless, but would spook the locals. Oh, yeah. I mean, good Lord. Yeah. Like, I think it happened almost immediately. Like, this thing sure. went up in March of 80. <laughs> I think like the Atlanta pagan community had adopted it uh-huh. by 1981. <laughs> Probably and they're so. like, public land, what are you going to do? Exactly. So another thing that makes this whole feat um, so amazing is that, you know, R.C. Christian showed up with the idea in the summer of 1979, and they dedicated the thing on March 22nd, 1980, two days after the spring equinox. No, that is fast turnaround, because not only did they have to quarry it, they had to do a lot of other stuff to it. These are not schlubby slabs. Schlubby slabs. They are. They were. They were pretty neat. They required a lot of extra work rather than just quarrying and cutting and polishing. There was more to it, wasn't there? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, they they had a big grand opening. There were, you know, quite a few people. Like three three to four hundred folks apparently showed up for the christening. And uh, like you said, it was it was a big deal. They were um, not only large. Uh, they were, you know, very, I believe like 19 feet tall each. Is that how tall they stood? Yeah. Which is, I mean, that's taller than Stonehenge. So take that England Stonehenge. (laughs) Take that ancient peoples. (laughs) Uh, so 19 feet tall, they weighed about uh, close to 120 tons. Yeah. And like we mentioned earlier, 4,000 sandblasted letters and characters about four inches high apiece that we'll get to what these all said. But uh, there are also some cool astrological features, right? Yeah. So um, Fendley went to the University of Georgia and said, I need an astronomer because I'm being asked to do some stuff that I do not know how to do. Um, And the Guidestones were considered a clock, calendar, and compass, all kind of ingeniously built into one. Because you've got those four slabs that were arranged in an X, like you said. There's a center stone known as the Gnomon Stone. And then on top of it all is a capstone, a square capstone that covered the Gnomon and parts of all four of the other slabs that radiated out from the Gnomon. And so they had, um, you could tell what day of the year it was and that it was noon. Um, You could see the um, summer solstice and I believe the winter solstice as well, like the X's were the like the the X or the edges of the X were positioned so that it followed the sun or the moon's migration, uh, annual migration across the sky. There was a lot going on that like the average person, including Fendley, could not just just you know guess at. It needed to be really precise. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, they're cutting these holes basically. Uh, and these little slots all around this thing to where you can peek through and see those uh, sunrises and things during the solstice uh, of winter and summer. You can look through one hole and look at the North Star. So, like you said, it's super exact. Um, There was a plaque on site that uh, listed R.C. Christian as the author of these words, and it said, a small group of Americans who seek the age of reason – and then basically says there's like a time capsule here. Here's where the time capsule is. And they left this central message that said, let these be guidestones to an age of reason. And that was in Egyptian hieroglyphics, Babylonian cuneiform, uh, classical Greek and Sanskrit. 
And then it listed, and we're going to read these out, but it listed 10 guides in eight different languages, uh, Arabic, Chinese, Hebrew, English, Russian, Hindi, Spanish, and Swahili. Yeah, and so each side of those four slabs that radiated from the gnomon, the center stone, uh, had a language. So the, all, all four had uh, two languages on each side, right? And in English, these were what these, these rules or guidelines or guides, however you want to call them, that were inscribed on the stone, uh, what they said. The first one, Chuck, was maintain humanity under 500 million in perpetual balance with nature. <laughs> Here's another one. If you don't like that one, you're not going to like this one either. Guide reproduction wisely, improving fitness and diversity. Yeah, problematic. <laughs> okay, well, how about this one? You're going to love this. Unite humanity with a living new language. Uh, could be problematic, unless we're talking, uh, what was that one language we did it on the years ago? Uh, Esperanto. Esperanto. Did we do one on? I think we did a video on it. I don't think we ever did it. Was a, that video? Did we do? Yeah. It gets confusing once you get back to 2011, 12, that kind of thing. We were all confused. Shall I go on or you want to take over? No, go ahead. This is fun. Okay. Um, the next one says, rule passion, faith, tradition, and all things with tempered reason. Down with that. Protect down meaning like you're down with it or down. The opposite no, I'm of down up with, with it. it. I see. No, that sounds great. Up with that, I'm down with that. <laughs> Protect people and nations with fair laws and just courts. Sure. Who wouldn't? Let all nations rule internally, resolving external disputes in a world court. Mm, that sounds a little creepy, potentially. The next one is something the libertarian and all of us can appreciate. Avoid petty laws and useless <laughs> officials. <laughs> yeah. Love that one. Uh -huh. I wonder what that sounds like in Hindi. Uh, drain the swamp. <laughs> right. There's also balance personal rights with social duties. That's a great one, too. Yeah. If you balance it correctly. Mm -hmm. uh, the next one is prize truth, beauty, love, seeking harmony with the infinite. Pretty new agey. Yeah, I like it, though. And then be not a cancer on earth. Leave room for nature. Leave room for nature. And then yeah. the last one, Sabbath rules with a Z. <laughs> I thought you were going to say Megadeth rules, Metallica drools. <laughs> Metallica does not drool. <laughs> well, I thought Megadeth fans didn't like Metallica. I think Isn't that an old beef? Sure, but it's totally unnecessary because both are great. Okay. Especially 80s, both were great. How about that? Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. If we're going specify. back in time. Yeah. Absolutely. That's what I'm talking about. Give me some credit. Um, <laughs> so from the beginning, the people that heard about this and uh, sort of took it as maybe what to do after the apocalypse, but apparently uh, Christian had written a little uh, pamphlet-like guidebook kind of thing mm -hmm. that talked about um, – not necessarily after the apocalypse, but here's how we might can avoid catastrophe. More along those lines. Yeah, I found a quote from one of the from that book that he wrote that said, "We are like a fleet of overcrowded lifeboats confronted with an approaching tempest." Then he says, "There are alternatives to Armageddon," and I couldn't find out what those alternatives were. Um, but if he didn't provide alternatives, then that's just letting everybody's imagination run wild. Mm -hmm. The other thing that a lot of people point out, too, is that this was these were inscribed in 1979, 1980, smack yeah. dab in the middle of the Cold War, which at that mm -hmm. time had no ending in sight. Um, and a lot of people were very worried about a nuclear winter. So if he did mean it, like, um, you know, that, that it was meant to rebuild humanity after a nuclear war— you can understand how he would have been coming from that way. The other way, though, makes a lot of sense, too, because at the time, that whole idea that humanity was going to keep growing exponentially was really popular still. Do you remember our zero population growth episode where we talked a lot about that? Yeah, there was that big book in 68, uh, The Population Bomb which really scared a lot of people. Uh, and I don't think we mentioned, too, that um, Christian initially said that they had been, he and his people had been working on this idea for 20 years. Mm -hmm. So it would have been all through the Cold War and all through this sort of population scare if he was telling the truth that they were coming up with these ideas. Right. 
But even even though the population bomb came out in 1968, this this kind of thought was going around because remember our friend Norman Borlaug, he saved the world in the 1940s and people yeah. were predicting like exponential growth. I mean, Malthus had been predicting exponential growth since the 18th century. So the population bomb really kind of presented it in stark contrast. Um, and it turned out to not be correct at all. But at the time, again, people were worried about it. But if you were really into that kind of thing, you were probably at least a little xenophobic. Um, you were possibly outright racist. And your concerns were not about how how fast America's population was growing. You were probably concerned about how fast Bangladesh's population was growing. Right. Or how fast some sub-Saharan na- African nations' uh, yeah. populations were growing. And ultimately, you might not have said it, what that meant for the white race and the white race's access to all the resources we need to keep being happy. Yeah, and you'll see this pop up a little bit throughout this, that some of these notions were possibly guided by um, white supremacy or xenophobia. At least, you know, it it sort of danced around those fringes, um, not the least of which was that first, you know, limit the world population to 500 million. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were close to four and a half billion people on the planet in 1980. So that's a pretty drastic reduction. That's an 88% reduction. Um, so that's a... That's a pretty foreboding thing to list as your first guideline, I think. Right, exactly. Yeah, especially if you don't mean it as like a post-apocalyptic guide, but something we need to do in the future. That is just downright scary because, first of all, that means a lot of people are going to die. But also, who exactly is calling the shots about who lives and who dies? And who are these people to to say or do something like that? So it takes a pretty pretty large amount of just entitlement in general— to, to choose that and then inscribe it as your first guide on some rocks that you leave standing ostensibly for hundreds of years. Yeah, and so you couple that with guide reproduction wisely, improving fitness and diversity. That's Improving fitness is sort of the key line that mm-hmm. sort of reeks of eugenics, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then also unite humanity with the new living language and the idea of a world court. All these things are sort of ideas that have been bandied about and on the fringes of uh, the internet and, and conspiracy-minded sites about the New World Order and things like that. And we're not going to dive too deep into that world. But suffice to say that these are the kind of alarm bells that are going off when certain people read the Georgia Guidestones. Yeah, because I'm not, I couldn't find out who originally interpreted as such, but the Book of Revelations apparently has been interpreted to talk about a world government and be wary of a world government because that's the Antichrist who's going to be leading it. And they, they will lead, you know, the the world into darkness and the final fight with God and all that stuff. So um, if you read the quotes, you're like, I, I don't quite know how you got here, but there's a lot of people who subscribe to that. Right. So when they were talking about, you know, world courts, that really kind of raised the antenna of some uh, fundamentalists and fringe Christians. Yeah, that's a good way to say it. Um, Thank you. But we <laughs> we can talk about some of the theories as to um, maybe who this group might have been, right? Uh, because again, Christian said that he represented a group of people, and it wasn't just like his, you know, this idea of some you know rich billionaire. Although you never know, it could have been the case uh, because we don't know the truth. But the Rosicrucians, and I, I believe we talked about them in one of our episodes at some point, mm-hmm. really rings a bell. Uh, but they were uh, this society, a secret society, those are always fun, that started in <laughs> fifth, uh, 15th century Germany. Mm-hmm. And it, 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 the person who started it may or may not have e- even existed. Uh, it's a gentleman named Christian Rosenkreutz, um, maybe a fictional human, maybe not, but was the founder of the Rosicrucians or the Rose Cross Society. Yeah. So um, the the founder Rosenkreutz um, supposedly got together some Turkish, Sufi, Persian mystical knowledge, put it all in like a nice three ring binder, turned <laughs> to some doctor friends and said, "Let's form a society based on this mystical knowledge and do all sorts of neat like incantations and stuff like that." And I don't know. Let's just take over the world while we're at it too. And I don't even get the impression that we're a hundred percent certain that any of this ever existed, that it was written about years later, maybe centuries later, um, but that it was possibly one of those things where it was like a self-fulfilling prophecy, 
like new groups actually did establish themselves after right. the fiction came out. I'm not sure. But um, it definitely did whatever those books were that introduced Rosicrucianism to uh, Europe. Um, they definitely did influence the Enlightenment and Enlightenment thinkers, including Thomas Paine. And um, Thomas Paine is kind of one of the overlooked founding fathers. Uh, and he really was a founding father. He was... Um, he was he founded the or he came up with the idea for the Declaration of Independence. He really kind of um, lobbied for a constitution in America, but he also wrote Age of Reason, being an investigation of the true and fabulous theology. He was a deist, and he thought you could use rationalization or rationalism to investigate religion and that a lot of it was just superstition. So if you're like a hardcore Christian, you don't really think very highly of Thomas Paine. But that age of reason thing, remember on the capstone it said, let this be a a way into the age of reason on the guidestones. That's how a lot of people connect the Rosicrucians to the Georgia guidestones. Right, because Thomas Paine was apparently connected to them, right? Yes, Okay, so the Rose, uh, Ro- it's hard to say that word for me. The Rosicrucians, I keep wanting to say the Rosicristians for some reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, like you said, they popped up before the Enlightenment and then kind of went away and then later popped back up in the 19th century when there was a big revival in the Europe and the U.S. of these sort of occult slash secret societies. A couple of them are still around today, apparently, the ancient mystical order Rose Crucis. Uh, and the Rosicrucian Fellowship are still around. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, who knows if any of the original stuff was actually real or just the work of fiction. Uh, either way, um, people, you know, some people think it might have been the Rosicrucians behind these guidestones. And again, like the, the Rosicrucians is, is a secret mystical society, but it also is potentially engaged in trying to take over the world. So that's what would give it a really ominous association, right? Yeah, and or uh, it also has been theorized that it was just a uh, a red herring to make people think that it was the Rosicrucians when it really wasn't at all, just to get people to sniff them off the case. Right. And so the Rosicrucians, they're a, a widely held suspect. Um, and then, of course, that um, logically leads to the next suspect, Ted Turner. <laughs> this is very tenuous to me. Oh, uh, yeah. I guess because Ted Turner was really rich. Um, maybe a little eccentric, but not really um, in the grand scheme of things. Right. Uh, but he did create what's known as the Turner Doomsday Video, uh, which was this video that he created and said, basically, this is the last thing CNN should air if the world was ending. And you think, oh, my God, what was the Turner Doomsday Video? <laughs> right, right. It's just this one-minute um, video of a, a military band playing the hymn Nearer My God to Thee, which one of the loveliest hymns mm. out there. It's one of my favorites, yeah. but that, that's all it is. That's it. That's it. There's <laughs> no really instructions for surviving the apocalypse. Nothing like that. It's the lamest doomsday video of all time. It just has well, it's just a, a network sign-off is what it is. Right. But he, the reason they call it the doomsday video is because when he brought CNN onto the air, he said that um, it would keep it would stay on the air until, you know, the end of the world. So that's right. where the doomsday thing came from. <laughs> and then the other thing that, like you said, Ted Turner maybe was a little out there or whatever, at least for his time. Like he did oversee Captain Planet, that cartoon on TBS in the early 90s. Um, <laughs> but he also gave a billion dollars, which at the time was a third of his wealth. Oh, yeah. To the UN, to, to establish the UN Foundation, which was involved in gender equality, which I think might have had some aspects of family planning to it. So maybe that's where the eugenics tie-in comes from or the population control. Oh. And then also it was really engaged in environmentalism too. So uh, that whole harmony with uh, be not a cancer on the earth thing just really implicates Ted Turner. <laughs> yeah. If you, if you grew up in Atlanta in the 70s and 80s, Ted Turner was a big deal. Uh, it was a name you heard a lot. He owned the Braves. He owned the Falcons for, or no, no, I think he owned the Braves and the Hawks. Mm. Yeah. Um, for a long time and uh, was our sort of most famous uh, dude in town. And I, I remember seeing him uh, at a Willie Nelson concert at Chastain, like it was a while ago, but it wasn't way back then. It was in the probably early 2000s. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I got a real kick out of it. I was like, I'd never seen him out in Atlanta before. I was like, holy cow, there's Ted Turner. Was he with Jane Fonda? My, 
I tip my scotch to you. No, he's with a couple of uh, uh, of younger women. <laughs> he's with a couple of younger ladies, but I think they were. Um, I think they might have been family members or something. Is what someone told me. I don't think he was like out foxtrotting with with a couple of gotcha young young girls. He was no stone silver fox like R.C. Christian. <laughs> oh, sure he was. You kidding me? No, he was a handsome man. But the, the upshot of Ted Turner's uh, involvement as one of the suspects is basically strictly because of his proximity to Elberton. That's it. Yeah. That is it. If Ted Turner was a billionaire in Kansas, his name Uh would have nothing to do with this whatsoever. So that makes him a very lame suspect. I think we're going to say suspect denied. (laughs) We need a little sound effect there. (laughs) We do. Uh, if Jerry listened to these episodes, then we might actually get that. I know. It's going to be great, though, because we're going to say all this and it's going to pass by silently. Uh, all right. So uh, who else? We could talk about um, some religious gobbledygook because uh, from the beginning, there were uh, Christians nearby that said this is the work of the devil. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is like satanic occultist stuff. Um, there was a Christian minister named Reagan R. Davis who visited in 2000 to the Guidestones and said, these are the Ten Commandments of the Antichrist, and this is a a culling of the human population by uh, the anti-Christians is basically what we're looking at. Right. And then, of course, all kinds of right-wing conspiracy crackpots uh, get involved and start calling them, uh, you know, Satan-based or Luciferian secret societies and the New World Order is coming and all of that fun stuff that exists on the fringe right. Yeah. And so, I mean, there's some holes in those theories that this is a the New World Order (laughs) headed by the elite who are actually following the Antichrist, who is being powered by Lucifer himself. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Where are the holes? (laughs) Right. The holes are that this monument, which is, it was impressive, right? It was a neat feat, especially for the people mm-hmm. of Alberton. But it objectively pales in comparison to even the ruins of Stonehenge. That yeah. this is the best that the Luciferian elite of the New World, world Order, right? The yeah. richest of the rich, the most powerful of the powerful. This is, <laughs> this is the best they could do. Elberton. And they put it in Elberton, Georgia. <laughs> yeah. And there's just the one. And this is how they revealed their plans, right? They wouldn't uh-huh. just go ahead and carry out like mass <laughs> sterilization projects or actually go ahead and create the one world currency and government. They would just erect this relatively small monument in the most rural of rural Georgia and just leave it at that. Yeah, and wait decades for the news to trickle out from the Elberton County Times right. to the Elberton 6 o'clock news and then the Atlanta 6 o'clock news yep. and so on and so on until it takes over the world. Yes. So, and I saw it like put as like that really it was the new world order, like having a laugh by making it just so blatant and it's just uh. even more ridiculous. <laughs> like, you know, I didn't, I, when I when I was like, we should do one on the Georgia Guidestones, it didn't even occur to me that it was going to take us down the path of conspiracy theorists. I know, right? <clears throat> but it really did because they latched on to this. And mm-hmm. so I was thinking about this, Chuck. I was like, why, why, you know, what is it about that? I mean, obviously it's mysterious and, you know, yeah. some of the stuff it's talking about is kind of weird and scary and possibly downright immoral, right? But I think more than anything, it's like people who are into conspiracy theories are unsettled by uncertainty. And so they need, yeah. like, it's way scarier to have. Uh, an indifferent world that that couldn't care less about you, that doesn't even know you exist, and that is so complex it can't possibly make sense to anybody. Yeah, that's way scarier than no. There's actually a a, a cabal led by the Antichrist that it probably involves Nancy Pelosi that we can right. like focus <laughs> all of our attention and energy on. Right. It makes it less scary. It gives it a form. Whenever you give yeah. something form, it becomes less scary. And then also, and this is my own theory, it also puts the conspiracy theorists on some sort of equal footing. So it gives them importance because yeah. they are a sworn enemy of that Antichrist-led cabal, and so right. they're important as well. So I think for all of those reasons, it's it, that's that's why things like the Guidestones attract conspiracy theorists, and I think that's why conspiracy theorists exist in general. They're afraid of the world. They're afraid of the world, oh, yeah. so they make it what seems to the rest of us like a far scarier place because they can't accept that it's just not that way at all, that things just aren't that neat and tidy and black and white. They're basically all gray. 
Yeah, and they're also fed a, a steady diet of paranoia and doomsday uh, news and paranoia news. Right. And it infiltrates their brain. So, you know, you could also go outside and plant a flower and drink in some sunshine. Take a walk. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's good, I, it's good for your body. It's very sad. Like, I don't. I don't, I'm not mad at them. I feel bad for them. I'm yeah. mad at like the the people who profit off of it, the ones who like stoke those yeah. flames. I consider for them sure. they're like expansive thinkers with small minds. That's what like yeah. the leaders of conspiracy theorist kind of world remind me of, you know? No, but otherwise you're right. It's a very sad life. It is, because you're just you know? scared or mad all the time. All the time. All right, that's um, that's my soapbox. All right. We'll mention Freemasons and take a break. And reveal some uh, some clues here, but uh, obviously the Freemasons are going to pop up uh, anytime you talk about the New World Order. Uh, Elberton itself, um, of course, is a small town in Georgia, so there are Freemasons there. Mm-hmm. Uh, Samuel Elbert, who founded Elberton, uh, built a Masonic lodge. Uh, a lot of people say that Finley and Martin were both Masons, which is no big surprise in a small town. That's a very common thing for uh, civic and business leaders to be Masons. So, uh, but. Freemasons are always targeted with uh, conspiracy-minded stuff. Mm-hmm. So, of course, they were going to be mentioned as well. You can go listen to our episode on Masons that we did yeah. years and years ago. Many years. Um, so let's take that break, and we'll come back and perhaps reveal the real identity of uh, R.C. Christian right after this. Stop. You, you, you know. Stop. 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 You should know. Hey everyone, host Nora McInerney is back for season two of The Head Start, Embracing the Journey, a podcast from Ruby Studio and AbbVie. In each episode, Nora has real conversations with real people living with chronic migraine to see how they take action to understand the disease. That's right. Recognizing how a migraine attack can change the course of your day, she unpacks each guest's journey and how they talk to their doctors to find the treatment plans that are right for them. Yep, along with headache specialist Dr. Christopher Ryan and other special guests, Nora speaks to these incredible people who've channeled their feelings of isolation in their chronic migraine journey into advocacy and art. Plus, there are also eight episodes of their first season available for you to binge. So jump into the conversation for season two, a show that creates a little more space for empathy and understanding in such a complicated world. There shouldn't be so much hesitation around asking questions and asking for help. So don't wait. Join the Head Start, embracing the journey as they learn a little bit more about life with chronic migraine. Hey there, are you thirsty? Well, before you take a sip, have you stopped to think about what's in your water? Many conventional bottled waters contain PFAS, harmful substances known as forever chemicals. But you can drink water as clean as nature intended. Richard's rainwater collects 100% pure, refreshing drops of rain. Yes, it really is rain, everybody. This rain is caught clean before it hits the ground or becomes polluted with pesticides and contaminants commonly found in groundwater. Yep, Richard's rainwater is naturally pure with no need for harsh chemicals or additives. That means no added fluoride, no chlorine, no forever chemicals, no microplastics, no nothing. And you can enjoy the clean taste of Richard's still rainwater and the long-lasting cold-pressured bubbles of Richard's sparkling rainwater. Just visit richardsrainwater.com to find a retailer near you. That's richardsrainwater.com. And we even have a special offer, don't we, Josh? Yeah, text STUFF to 251292887 and you'll get $2 off a 12-pack case of Richard's rainwater. Sip the sky. You know, true love is always being excited from the first moment you see one another. And every time after that, it's taking long walks together in the summer or gazing longingly into each other's eyes and watching their tail wag when they chase a squirrel in the yard. Well, the pedigree brand asked about believing in love at first sight. And honestly, the answer is yes. Uh, As everyone knows from listening to this show, we have pulled all of our dogs off the street that Emily and I have had over the years, either right off the street or through a local shelter and working with them. And they've all become valued family members. And we think they've appreciated it, too. Yeah, Chuck, there is a pedigree loyalty survey that found that 90% of first-time dog owners report having a dog improved at least one of their relationships, and 80% of first-time dog owners are overwhelmingly more likely to have made at least one new connection as a result of getting a dog. And 95% of all dog owners say that the bond they have with their dogs is closer than they ever expected. Not a big surprise. 
That's true. We all know that adopting a dog can lead to a lifetime meaningful connection and real love can exist between a pet and a pet parent. You got that straight. Pedigree is committed to helping more dogs find loving homes. Opening your home to a dog can help open your heart. And Love at First Sight is closer than you think because it's available at your local dog shelter. Yeah, very important point. You can find love at first sight with the Pedigree Adoption Drive from June 7th to June 9th. And the Pedigree brand will reimburse your dog adoption fees nationwide. That's right. So just visit pedigree.com slash adoption dash drive to learn more and see full terms and conditions. Hey there, everybody. Here's some bonus stuff you should know. This time it's about traveling to Orlando for business. Orlando has tons of places to host your conferences and meetings. Dr. Michael Edwards, CEO of Ocean Insight, said it best. Orlando is as much a business capital as an entertainment one. And when the day is done, you can kick off each evening at one of 46 Michelin-rated restaurants. What's not to love? So check out Orlando, where the possibilities for business travel are unbelievably real. Learn more at orlandoforbusiness.com. Okay, Chuck, so we're back, and I think it's high time that we revealed the possible identity of R.C. Christian. And it is not nearly as um, earth-shaking as you'd think, because it's possible he was a crank from Iowa. Maybe. Um, There's a documentary uh, from about seven years ago called Dark Clouds Over Elberton, colon. Colon. The true story of the Georgia Guidestones. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a Christian documentary filmmaker named named Christian Pinto. That's and, as Christian as it gets. <laughs> very much. And this filmmaker um, basically said, "There's a gentleman named Herbert Henzi Kirsten uh, from Fort Dodge, Iowa. He was a doctor born in 1920, and he was outed as. And there's some pretty." Pretty good little convincing clues here. Yeah, for sure. uh, That this might have been the dude. So um, uh, he was a Republican, check. (laughs) He was into the (laughs) environment. He was a conservationist. Um, He supposedly in a 1992 letter to the South Florida Sun Sentinel um, talked about like he how David Duke was one of the few politicians representing America. Um, and the thing is, though, is he's saying, like, David Duke is leading America. And remember, David Duke was, like, the head of the Ku Klux Klan who kind of supposedly disavowed the Klan and tried to run for uh, public office many times in the 80s. I think he won at some point, right? Did he? Please tell me he didn't. I thought he was unsuccessful every time. I'm pretty sure. What? Okay. This is off the dome, but I'm pretty sure he won at one point. Well, that is pretty shameful. Whatever state elected David Duke... That's pretty shameful. Would have been Louisiana. <laughs> okay. Okay. So, um, but he was supporting David Duke in this, quote, new era of internationalism. So, it sounds like he wasn't down with internationalism, which would kind of go against the whole idea of creating world courts and the like. Uh, I had to look it up. David Duke, yeah, he was in the Louisiana State House oh, of boy. Representatives okay. for a little while. Well. Um, yeah, that's a good point. Um, but also in his obituary... Uh, when Kirsten died in 2005, it said that he was very involved in environmental and world population issues uh, and held a, quote, broad vision of humanity. So I guess some stuff kind of checks out, some stuff kind of doesn't. One of the things that links him, though, to at least um, Martin, uh, Wyatt Martin, um, the banker from the Granite State Bank, who was the one person who knew who R.C. Christian was, was that there was definitely correspondence uh, that was, I, I guess it was written down in a log or something, but that, that Herbert Kirsten and uh, Wyatt Martin did correspond at some point. So that's, I think, what really kind of links them more than anything. Oh, okay. I see what you mean. Um, interesting. And I don't think we mentioned, too, when Christian, R.C. Christian corresponded with Martin, uh, there were letters sent from kind of all over the United States mm-hmm. I guess in a bid to keep the identity a secret. Yeah, that's what I I took it as too. Okay, I didn't know that Kirsten actually was in touch. So, yeah, I mean, pretty pretty good clue there. But we should also say that that South Florida Sun Sentinel columnist said that the, his letter from 1992 was full of exclamation points and underlined words, which automatically says, "Don't take me seriously." <laughs> 
Um, there's another theory that I think is pretty lame, uh, basically, is that the Elberton Granite Association kind of surreptitiously, or at least under the table, ordered this thing mm-hmm. uh, to stir up a lot of, um, maybe not conspiracy, but just interest as a tourist attraction. Right. And it was just sort of an inside job for the county to begin with. And it ended up, you know, a lot of people, people from around the world eventually would come and see this thing. Right. Uh, and check it out in person. So it did work, but I, I just don't know if, uh, if that holds up. Well, even at first, the in, the internally in the town, uh, Fenley and Martin, the, the granite finisher and the banker, were accused of being the ones behind it. And yeah. they actually took very publicly lie detector tests, I think, at Elberton City Hall, and both passed. So after that, they the cloud of suspicion they were under kind of passed. But, um, yeah, that was, I guess, kind of a, a bit of a controversy from the outset because, you know, um, Fenley really kind of made out with this job, and it just kind of dropped into his lap. So I think some of the other granite finishers were suspicious of it. So the guy, Charlie Clamp, this uh, carver who heard the voices and stuff, his son, Mart Clamp, which is a great name, um, would like propose the idea for like week-long festivals and they would use that as evidence that it was an inside thing. But I just saw that as like a younger generation saying like, hey, we got this thing. Let's like try and make some money off of it. Yeah, I think there are plenty of people in town. I saw in a, an, there was a Wired article that in 2009, it was like the definitive story that for a long time. Um, and they said that uh, it literally put Elberton on the map because mm-hmm. it was f- first included in 2005 in National Geographic's Geotourism Map Guide to Appalachia. Mm, there you have it. <laughs> yeah, and like Alberton would not have been included in that had it not been for the Georgia Guidestone. No. <laughs> so, yeah, Probably like it not. definitely had a, an impact on the local economy for decades because it just brought people who otherwise would not have shown up. All right, so the Guidestones are there for quite a long time. Uh, beginning in sort of the mid-2000s, uh, there was some vandalism that started popping up here and there. Um, spray painting them, Jesus will beat you, Satanist, the letter U. Mm-hmm. Uh, no one world government. Uh, some of them talked about 9-11 being an inside job. Some talked about Obama, like Obama birthers, and saying that he was a Muslim. My favorite, uh, Chuck, that- can I share? <laughs> yeah, you're about, yeah, go ahead. Uh, my favorite was the Council on Foreign Relations is ran by the devil. Talk about sticking okay. it to the new world <laughs> order. Am I right? My favorite was the ISIS one, uh, which was reported to the FBI in 2013, but it said, I am ISIS, goddess of love, <laughs> which is, you know, it's talking about the Egyptian goddess mm-hmm, ISIS, right. not uh, not ISIS, ISIS, not ISIL, ISIS. <laughs> Whoever alerted the FBI makes no distinction between those two, apparently. Uh that's right. And so these things have been sort of vandalized over the years. And this culminated in uh, just a little over a month ago, July 6th this year, um, at 4 a.m. in the morning, uh, a bomb went off and and destroyed enough of the Georgia Guidestones to call them dangerous and call for their uh, complete demolition by the county. Um, they have it on video because they did have cameras kind of monitoring this thing. Uh, and there was a you know, kind of a, a blurry video that uh, you can look it up online. You can see the, the bomb going off. Um, you don't really get a very clear look at the car. You don't get a very clear look at a human. Mm-hmm. It's a silver sedan. Uh, I looked up just today to see if there were any new leads, and I think they're kind of coming up empty so far on who actually uh, demolished this thing. Yeah, I saw that the ATF is trying to figure out what explosive was used, and the GBI is looking for this person who's going to charge them with a terroristic act or whatever. But sadly, Elberton voted to give the remains over to the Granite Council, and the Granite Council voted not to rebuild. So the Georgia Guidestones are gone forever because when there's fundamentalist conspiracy theorists around, we just can't have nice things. Can't have nice things. You got anything else? I got zero nice things left. All right. Well, since Chuck said that, everybody, it's time for listener mail. Uh, I'm going to call this a couple of breakfast emails. Uh, That episode just dropped today, uh, IRL, about our breakfast foods, and people seem to like it. Uh, The first thing I'm going to say is I misspoke and said sour cream on my bagel instead Uh, of cream cheese. Is that what everybody's been talking about? 
Yeah, I didn't. Obviously, it was just a verbal typo, and you didn't even catch it. No, so, I didn't. Um, the people that said, hey, you clearly misspoke, uh, thank you. The people that are like, what? <laughs> you eat sour cream on bagels? <laughs> I'm like, come on. Come on. Come on. Uh, all right, so this, this is a couple of them. Uh, Hello, chaps. Really enjoyed your show about breakfast, but have you ever had a great British fry-up, a.k.a. a full English breakfast? It's basically a heart attack on a plate. Bacon, sausage, <laughs> grilled tomatoes, baked beans, mushrooms, black pudding, toast and or fried bread, hash brown, patty style, and at least two fried eggs. The ultimate hangover cure and the greatest meal of all time. Washed down with copious cups of hot tea and complimented with HP brown sauce. That is from Donna Kay in the UK. And uh, yeah, Donna, I've had that. I'm, I don't like the mushroom part. And I'm not really big on grilled tomatoes. <laughs> what about the beans? Do you like the beans? I do. I love them. I'm down with all the do rest. Do you really? Because, uh, you know, yeah. you see those beans and you're like, man, all that, that's going to be loaded with brown sugar. And then you take a bite and you're like, oh. Nope. They're not like Georgia barbecue they, big beans. They taste like Roger Daltrey. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. Thank what you. a great Who reference. Thanks, man. I'm pretty proud of that one, too. Did you write that down or you just think of it? Of course I, you I didn't. Because you didn't even know this was coming. I didn't. Very, very well done. Uh, All right, here's the other one. Uh, Hey, guys, breakfast episode is wonderful. We're going to do a little Judge John Hodgman here. We're going to actually intervene here and make a decision. Uh, I keep having to pause the episode to text my partner uh, new mind-blowing facts that I learned, and I was hoping you would say something that would validate my opinions on brunch. (laughs) But alas, you did not. Brunch is breakfast food at lunchtime, and this is the hill I will die on. Uh, I start this debate regularly as my in-laws like to plan brunch, no lunch food at all, for 9 a.m., and I argue that the word they're looking for is just breakfast. (laughs) I have no leg to stand on. Thanks for all you do. And this is from Stephanie. Uh, And so I asked Stephanie a couple of follow-up questions. Uh, Basically, I was like, um, do they serve alcohol Mm -hmm. at this 9 a.m. quote-unquote brunch? Mm -hmm. And do they usually eat at like 5 a.m.? <laughs> right. And so this would be much, much, much later for them. Right. Uh, and Stephanie said, uh, my mother and father-in-law don't really eat breakfast normally. Everyone else probably does have something and possibly early since most of them are teachers. Um, but nothing egregious, I think. Uh, mimosas are fair game. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's fair enough to get it classified as brunch. But... Uh, most of these mimosas are mostly OJ unless I'm in charge of making them. Hmm. So I'm going to rule this is just breakfast. Yeah, I would call that boozy breakfast. Yeah, and that ain't brunch. Brunch, you got to eat it after after 10.30 at least. Uh, More like 11. Yeah, no, I would say 10.30 is the, early, the earliest. You'll walk past a rooster crowing, maybe. Yeah. At that time. So 9, 9 a.m. is it's just... I'm sorry, Stephanie's in-laws. It's breakfast. Yep. And we have ruled on it. I'm Jesse Thorne. I mean, throw a <laughs> throw a tuna melt on there. Maybe you have a case. But if you're just serving breakfast items at 9 a.m., then it's breakfast. <laughs> it really is. But then also, Stephanie, I want to put in a word for your in-laws. Like, just lay off. <laughs> you know, <laughs> call it whatever you want. Them really. Call it brunch <laughs> if they want to. But you're right. <laughs> yeah, you are correct. Uh, if you want to be like Stephanie and... Make us solve a dispute? No, we can't do that. No. John Dodgman does that best. The other person. What's the other person's name? The first guy. Oh, I got you. Uh, the first person was... I like that swinging in, though, Chuck. That was great stuff. Donna Kay. Oh, okay. So if you want to be like Stephanie and Donna Kay and get in touch with us, we would love that. You can send us an email to stuffpodcast at iheartradio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Are you thirsty? Well, Richard's rainwater is caught clean before it even hits the ground. Rain is naturally pure, so there's no need for harsh chemicals or additives. Richard's rainwater contains no chlorine, no forever chemicals, 
no microplastics, no nothing. Enjoy the smooth, clean taste of still rainwater or the cold, pressured bubbles of sparkling rainwater. Just visit richardsrainwater.com to find a retailer near you. That's richardsrainwater.com. And for a coupon, text STUFF to 251-292-8887 and receive $2 off a 12-pack case of Richards Rainwater. Hey, everybody, if you've been looking for love at first sight, it's closer than you think. It can be found at your local shelter. So this June 7th to June 9th, join the Pedigree Adoption Drive and the Pedigree brand will reimburse your dog adoption fees nationwide. Pedigree knows that bringing a dog into your home not only opens their heart, it can open yours, too. Visit pedigree.com slash adoption dash drive to learn more and see full terms and conditions. Ready, set, griddle this grilling season. Get the Weber Slate rust-resistant griddle. With a carbon steel cooktop that's safe for metal tools, it's pre-seasoned and ready to cook on right out of the box. It's the griddle that stays ready, not rusty. This griddle heats evenly edge to edge. It reaches up to 500 degrees, and the Weber Works Prep Cook and Store System keeps cooking supplies handy. You can carry all the food, condiments, and utensils you need. So get fired up for your new Weber Slate rust-resistant griddle. Hey, if you haven't heard of Visible, well, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon as low as $25 a month every month, taxes and fees included. Use promo code STUFF. 20 to receive $20 off your first month for listening to this podcast. Switch now at Visible.com. For data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. The Visible monthly rate is $25 per month. 